Good evening. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to spend tonight with you talking about parenting in isolation, the trials, the tribulations, and hopefully you'll leave with some validation and some ideas of how to make your homes the most peaceful and productive during this really crazy time. I am so excited to have Erica Bachnick with us today. She is a Hillel parent, a family therapist, and an associate professor of educational psychology at Wayne State University. Um, she studies resiliency in children for a living, so we are so lucky to have her. No one probably in our community could speak better to this than Erica. So um, this really is a forum for us to share, talk about our experiences, walk away with some ideas of things you can do to adapt what's happening in your homes, and also just feel like we're part of a community parenting together in a time that's really, really challenging. Just um, one housekeeping item, you'll find that the chat feature is on. Um, your questions, though, will only come directly to Erica and me. So all of the participants will not see your questions. I will read them through um, kind of as we go, and I will not say who the question came from, just to protect anybody's confidentiality if indeed you do want your confidentiality protected and um, your anonymity. But um, we're here, I'm excited, and I'm going to turn it over to Erica, who's gonna start us off. Hold on one second, I just had somebody message me, she's looking for the Zoom link. Um, sure. Kim, if you can help me out with that. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Kim, thank you so much for that introdu introduction. I'm so excited to talk with you guys tonight about parenting and resilience during this time. Um, in addition to all those hats that I wear professionally, most of you know me as a parent. I have a nine-year-old, a five-year-old, and a two-year-old here at home. The five-year-old actually wonderfully had her kindergarten orientation at Hillel the day before this all started. So she um, had that chance to see the school and is really looking forward to joining her big brother and all of his buddies next fall. Um, so I'm living through it here with you guys, and I hope you'll feel very comfortable asking questions and um, being part of the discussion tonight. As Kim said, I'm a college professor, so I'm also perfectly happy just to talk and share some of the things we know from the science. Um, I've been studying risk and resilience after stress and in situations where um, trauma occurs for children and their families for many years, all the way from Jackson, Michigan to New Orleans in a post-Katrina environment, um, and now here in Detroit. So usually when I'm giving these webinars and talking to community groups, um, we're talking about all the ways that stress and trauma occur in kind of these complex ways and the way children are sort of growing up in contexts where there might be persistent or chronic stress. Of course, this time is really unique in that we're sort of all experiencing the same initial stressor and we can talk about the ways that um, that's created a waterfall effect and how we might be feeling it in different ways. Um, but what I really like to talk about are ways that we can ourselves be strong during times like this and help each other together raise healthy, resilient kids. 
Um, I'd love to hear about some of the things going on in your homes and whether there's questions that you have, um, problems that you're facing, or if you've got great stories to share about times that you and your kids have really persevered um, and faced a challenge together and what you're finding works at home. Any brave soul so, want to start us out? Okay, Erica, I can start by talking a little bit about my experience um, to get us going. Um, and we didn't really get into this so much when we met prior to today's meeting. Um, I have one child, he's five, and was halfway through his kindergarten year when all of this started. And as you guys know, I am still working full time and it often feels more than full time because with um, everything being virtual and digital, digital, it feels like there are less boundaries. Work doesn't end at 345. It doesn't begin at 805. It's kind of all go all of the time. And so in our household, we're kind of dealing with the stress of what seems like more workload and a more stressful workload because um, lots of problem solving is taking place on a daily basis. And then juggling that with not just my child's education and, and trying to have him learn something, but just giving him the undivided attention that he needs and deserves. That's been like a real sticking point for me and, and something that has given me mom guilt most days is that I need to tend to my work, but he needs me and oftentimes I'm like rushing to give him what he needs rather than giving him what I feel is meaningful interaction and meaningful attention. Um, and then just the uncertainty in the world and wondering like when we're going to be able to like see friends and family again, like spending Mother's Day without my mom for the first time in 38 years, like all of those little losses or little moments of like, when are things going to start to feel again, like I can be a little bit like myself just adds like a daily kind of um, heaviness, I guess the word is, um, on my shoulders. Now, me being me, having a background in mental health, I kind of know intuitively what to do to help with these things. And that being said, I still have really hard days. And um, a lot of my colleagues know and see it. There are oftentimes where um, I feel not good enough or like um, the struggle is just like never ending. It seems like there's not going to be a relief or a reprieve. Um, and so it's hard to focus on myself and my, my own mental health so I can provide best for my child and be the best wife I can be and maintain my friendships and relationships this way. Mm -hmm. So that's me. That's my life right now. I, hopefully I'm seeing some nods that some of you kind of have similar experiences, but I know Erica and, and reading um, one of her articles and talking with her um, yesterday that she has a lot of great insight to help with experiences such as mine. 
Um, Kim, thank you so much for sharing all of that. I think it was very vulnerable and very real. And you certainly are saying things that a lot of us are feeling. And I'm hearing actually some of those themes from working moms like us who are trying to juggle it all. But even people who feel like they sort of have one job right now, and that's to get their kids through this, are still feeling kind of pulled in a million directions um, for whatever the reasons, right? There's all kinds of things that are demanding our time and our mental resources right now. Um, I could go in kind of a thousand directions, but I think what I'll do is say a few things that are coming to mind for me, and then maybe you'll have some follow-up or someone else will. The first thing that I want to say um, about all the things that you just shared is that um, I want to just tell a quick story. Um, I started doing this job before I had kids. And then when I was pregnant with Ethan and, and just after I had him, the question I got all the time was, um, how is what you thought you know different now that you have a child? And I thought it was such a funny question, but what it really spoke to is that um, people feel like there's probably like um, an escalator up to perfect parenting and that you sort of start on the bottom when you have a baby and you're trying to get on it and you're trying to get to the ceiling and you're trying to learn all the things as you go. And the only way to learn them are by being in the trenches and to practice it and to do it well. And I, I thought a lot about this because I thought, well, there's certainly some things I'll learn in the moment, right? Like how to soothe a fussy baby, what to do when the snot turns green. But it sort of felt very um, frightening to me that I could be parenting a child and never really know how to do it until this kid's what, like 18? Is that when you finally figure it out? That was a really scary idea. So I really thought about this question all the time. Are there things that I know now that can be helpful to me? And, and what are they, if that's true? Are the things I've read in a book that can be helpful to me? And what it turns out is true, was true then and continues to be true, is that there is no version of perfect parenting. The science tells us that over and over. Children need parents who say, I love you a lot, look them in the eye, and when they're present, really interact with them, ask meaningful questions. But there are no research papers out there that suggest that continuous positive attention around the clock is really the thing that makes a difference. Or, you know, I like to say this tongue in cheek, but it's really true. There's not a research paper out there that says um, four craft projects a day is what builds resilient kids. The things that really matter for our kids to grow strong and healthy are in these very small focused moments and in a sense of predictability about their environment and their relationships. So in the current time, I'm right there with you that my kids are sort of swirling around me all the time. And you know, the truth is my job's always been weird. <laughs> it's not predictable. I don't work nine to five. I work, you know, 10 to 2, and then again, 8 p.m. till 11 p.m. some days. And then the next day, I'm gone early in the morning, and they don't see me, and, I, and they go to bed without me, and that could be a Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, I'm volunteering at the school, and I'm at everything. So in some ways, my kids had some um, preparation for this kind of chaotic, weird schedule. And what I know to be true is that they can cope with any amount of uncertainty if they know um, that I'm going to get them through it, that there's somebody in charge, there's somebody at the helm, and that 
the things they need that they can predict with some certainty. So um, what things are those? We try to create consistency around routines in the home. Does not mean a schedule. We are not following a schedule here during this pandemic. And as I just described, they had a different daily schedule every day, even before this pandemic, because I did. But a routine means that the things that are important, they can predict. Dinner time happens around the same time every evening. They can mostly predict who's gonna be around the table for dinner. Breakfast happens around the same time every day. They can expect what the rules and expectations are around those meal times. They know what their expectations right now are generally around schoolwork and what has to get done and when that has to get done. And then we incorporate into our family life rituals. Family rituals are, for me, one of the um, most sort of exciting parts of my research, and it's a thing that I really hold dearly to in my personal life as well. It was this total light bulb moment when I had spent all these years in what felt like a very heavy area of science, studying children who were at risk because of trauma. And the science tells us over and over again, when children are traumatized, there's all kinds of um, poor outcomes that will cascade from that trauma. They do worse in school. They have poor self-regulation. Um, they are set up for mental health problems across the lifespan. And researching and writing these papers over and over, essentially documenting this, was challenging for me. And I said, there has to be something we can learn from this to help these kids. It can't just be, we have to somehow unpack trauma, right? If stress is an inevitable part of life, how can we teach people to face it in ways that make them stronger and better, right? The phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. When does that happen and how? Interestingly, I fell into the family routines and family rituals literature in that way because what I found is that it's very accessible to all families. We all have the capacity to build rituals with the people that we love. And it has like big bang for your buck. I have a paper that came out last year in the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy um, showing that the presence of family rituals buffers the impact of complex trauma, actually persistent and complex trauma on children's mental health symptoms. So what are family rituals? Family rituals are experiences that families have together that are predictable. That part's really important. The, children, uh, the child or children in your home have to know when it's going to occur in, insofar as they're even able to participate in it, right? Like it can be um, Taco Tuesday and they have to know it happens every Tuesday or even every other Tuesday and they can help get the ingredients out and they can really be a meaningful part of it. So it has to be consistent and predictable. And then the other piece of it that's really important is that it has to spark joy. It has to be an experience that all family members enjoy doing together. Now that part might feel a little trickier because there are things that we do with our kids that we don't authentically enjoy. We do them because we know they're great for the kids. Or there may be things that we really love and we really encourage our kids to be like, part of the group and do along with us, but they're not necessarily experiences that the kids are feeling authentic joy doing. In a family ritual, everyone has to really feel some amount of authentic joy doing it together. Joy is the emotion that glues us together in relationships. 
And it's really the sort of um, fuel that powers family rituals, because the reason family rituals have such a big impact on buffering the effects of trauma is what's called emotional residue. I love this term because if you've ever had an experience like a family ritual with someone you love, you just get this. It's the stickiness of that memory that stays with you in challenging times. A really special ritual in my life that I like to use as an example um, occurs with this group of girlfriends I have that I grew up with. They're my childhood friends. They're like sisters to me. Um, in our 20s, there was a wedding every year for seven years. And the morning of the, I'm sure a lot of you guys did this with your friends too, the morning of the wedding, every time we had a wedding, the morning of the wedding, we spent the morning together getting our hair done and drinking champagne and reminiscing together. It's a yearly ritual, right? This is not something that occurs frequently, but it was predictable to us. It was something that created a lot of joy. And I remember, you know, the day I started my, um, my first kind of big job when I was at Wayne State, I walk into this huge faculty meeting and I don't know where to sit. I don't have a single friend in that room. I don't know a single person. And I sort of take with me the stickiness of that memory of being with friends who love me, who know me. It helps me feel powerful and strong. It gives me capacity to sit down at a table with strangers. Our children take the stickiness of the rituals that we have with them in the same way, a special bedtime ritual where we share love, we share a book, we share a song. They take the stickiness of that bedtime ritual with them into the next day when they're confronting the stress of homeschool, the challenge of not seeing their friends. This is true for children across ages. It's not just a little kid thing. It's something that families can continue across the years. It builds family identity and it promotes positive personal identity for children. And I wanted to stop here because I saw that you had a few questions, but yeah, we have a few questions coming in and I just want to um, real quickly like wrap up what you were saying about rituals and share with everybody that this is something especially at bedtime that not only really helps my son, um, but it helps me. So we have a bedtime ritual that we've had and I'll spare you the mushy details of it, but we've had it since he you know, was probably in a big boy bed. And regardless of what happened during the day, so today he knocked over a vase and it shattered into a million pieces three minutes before I had a meeting with the fifth and sixth grade teachers. He refused to do his schoolwork until 2.30 p.m., 30 minutes before my husband was getting home and all he wanted to do was play football in the backyard, but his schoolwork wasn't done. And then we just had all of these struggles today, but I know that when we do our ritual tonight, it's like hitting the reset button and whatever happened during the day kind of evaporates and we are both leaving each other for, for the evening and to start the next day with what Erica talks about, that joy, that residue to kind of say it's over and I love you no matter what and we're here together and we're doing this together and tomorrow's going to be better. So just from experience, what Erica's talking about, like truly, truly helps not just my son Hudson, but also me. Um, okay, so a couple of questions that are coming in. Um, 
let's see, Michelle, um, and oops, I wasn't supposed to say names, so I'm sorry, I'm not the best moderator. Um, Erica, um, we have a parent here who wants to talk about the lack of social interaction um, and just how we try these measures, whether it be like drive-bys or waving through windows or um, like my son uses this kid's messenger app, which he's really way too young to understand how to use, but it's like the only way for him to talk to his school friends. So that's a struggle for me. Like, I don't believe this is appropriate, but how else is he supposed to talk to his friends? Um, those kind of things might be wearing off for some of the kids. So what does the research say about resilience as it relates to lack of face-to-face -face social interaction, if, if you know of any research as it relates to that? I can speak to this a little bit. I, I have to tell you, just a few years ago, I was at a professional conference and I was actually, I mean, it probably wasn't just a few years ago. It was probably close to like it was probably like eight years ago. Anyway, I was really surprised at the lack of scientific research actually about this because my sense was that at that time it was really taking off for kids to Skype and um, otherwise video chat with grandparents, for example. Families more and more weren't living in the same cities and states as each as their extended family. People were moving for jobs. This is a bit of a phenomenon related to our generation. And I thought there'd be more information about this. And so I just wanted to share that because I have sort of two answers. One is that the research is relatively new around this. And because of just how um, kind of pervasive um, this kind of social connection is, I still think there's going to be a lot we're going to learn during this time. So I don't want to mislead anybody that we know for sure. Um, but what I can tell you is that Social development certainly depends on human-to-human -human interaction. That's true across ages. Um, parents can and siblings can absolutely, mm, maybe substitute is a strong word, but replicate a lot of the important processes that children need to develop their social interaction. Make sure that you're asking your kids questions. Make sure you're waiting for the answers. Make sure you're asking follow-up questions. Encourage them to make small talk with you. I'm even trying to take kind of um, the opportunity to interact with my kids in the ways that other friends might. I'm relaxing my standards a bit, for example, on like potty language. And, um, you know, my son wants to talk a lot about this basketball card versus that basketball card. And I'm not shooing him away to go Zoom with a friend. I'm, I'm getting in there and talking with him about it and asking him to educate me a little bit. And so I think that's one way that we can fill that gap a little bit, because I do think that that's an important part of what they're missing here. What we know from the research about the tech piece is that it's not a complete substitute for human-to-human -human interaction. And we've quickly kind of inserted it into our relationships because we so miss what we had. And I think we do a little bit have to say we're grieving something that isn't there and we can't pretend that it's there. So listen, I'm with all of you in terms of like still encouraging it we were a family that like nobody had an extra device here besides what my husband and I have for work. And there was very limited TV time before this. 
And like the day that school closed, we ran out and bought an iPad and he's got like four messaging apps and he talks all day long to friends if he wants to. And the same thing for my five-year-old. Um, so I think we still encourage it because we don't know. But at the end of the day, what our kids need is real human-to-human -human contact. We're learning a little bit that the brain is working overtime to detect the like nonverbal cues that are really critical for conversational turn taking and like the other parts of social development that are important. The, the brain's kind of working overtime on Zoom because we're kind of lacking that feedback. So it's exhausting and it's exhausting for our kids. And, you know, again, it's, it really is just not a full substitute. There's a great book that I'm halfway into, but I think I can recommend it called, if it turns south after this, my apologies, it's called The New Childhood. And it's really about sort of accepting tech in our lives and thinking about it not as a like limit or don't limit, but rather how do we incorporate it in ways that are sort of integrated with human development and kind of make sense for us as a as social creatures. And um, and so I'm learning a lot from that and kind of thinking that through. Thanks, Erica. There's some follow-up questions related to that topic. Um, one of them being like, is it okay to let my eight-year-old um, use things other than FaceTiming? Will it open Pandora's box? And is that something that you can pull back after you've kind of introduced it? Um, and, and really like, my answer to that is if I had thought it through better when it when we first started, I probably would not have introduced it because I don't think that you can take it away after. So once I realized my, my mistake, I set really firm boundaries about it. So there's only certain times you can use it. You may not call the same person repeatedly. I'm trying to like teach a little bit of etiquette surrounding it. Um, and what has ended up happening is now that like the novelty of it has worn off a little bit. My son is like calling his uncle at work and saying like, text me. And they send like sports teams back and forth. And it's really benign. Um, but, but my advice would be like, if you can arrange to do FaceTime with other children's parents, I think that's definitely the better way to go. That's my personal opinion. Um, and then um, Erica, we have some questions um, from a couple parents about um, kind of finding the balance between talking to our kids about the virus and the dangers of it and what's going on in the world um, in terms of health and politically, um, and also allowing them to be kids without causing more trauma and um, creating too much anxiety or fear surrounding what's going on in our world. So any thoughts about that? I think I have some, but I would love to hear what you think. I would love to hear what you think, actually. Okay. So um, I think that 
like the person who asked said, like it really is about that balance. I do not think that we should completely shelter our children from what's going on, regardless of the age. So it's important that we're talking about it to our kids in an age appropriate way with language that they understand. So there are a lot of resources out there and social stories for the little kids. And for the older kids, you can be more frank and direct about what's going on without oversaturating them with information from the media or data like surrounding death rates or you know our state is the third worst in in the country things like that are not productive for our kids but if we talk to them about it in a way that's informing rather than um, creating fear I think that that is totally acceptable and productive. So if you have children that are going to play outside in the neighborhood and you're not confident that neighborhood friends are social distancing, you might just say a reminder like, hey, um, I wanna make sure you're staying healthy. I trust you to stay as you know, six feet or more away from whomever you're playing with. And if they get too close, then you say, this isn't feeling comfortable for me. I, I don't want to get sick. Um, but of course, like we need to be able to allow them to be kids right now. And um, we can't monitor if they're outside. And, and I mean, this isn't happening in my neighborhood. Kids aren't like coming together like that in my neighborhood. But if they are in yours, um, you can educate um, and inform, but not like, overdo it in terms of like if you do this then this is going to happen you don't want to ever give absolutes because that's what creates the anxiety and the fear um have them come back in wash their hands send them out with a mask if if you can um it is that balance but i i understand that that balance is is really hard to find um and i, I hope that answered it in terms of um interaction and then also informing them of what's coming in um, from the media. So when in doubt, don't completely shelter, but don't over inform. That's just like a good rule of thumb and always keep it in language that they understand. And I can yeah, I send out some resources after this too about it. I have like a whole host of things for different ages. I think that balance is right on. And Something I just want to add to that is that um, our emotions are are contagious to our kids. And so um, what your kids need to understand is um, if you're feeling anxious, worried, upset, you don't have to hide those feelings from them. They're already, they've already caught them. They already feel them. Children are wonderfully intuitive. It's like my favorite thing about working with kids. You can, they can, they're better than adults are at looking at a person and just knowing instinctively what they feel and, but they can't always name it, but they can feel it, you know? And so they catch our feelings and it's important that we are being transparent about the ways that we're coping um, and we don't sort of try, uh, try to shield them so much from information that we think we're doing them a favor because they know, you know, this is weird what's happening and the adults are uncertain and they know that that's true. Um, 
So I'm trying to really, and, and before this too, I just try to talk really openly, like, you know, this was a really hard day for me, or I'm feeling really sad. And that's, you might notice that I'm being really quiet. I'm not angry with you. Um, I feel tired. I feel worried. My head feels very full. Here are the things that I'm going to do to cope with those feelings. We can do them together. I might do them by myself, but I try to talk out loud about that. Now, the good news is that hope is also contagious. And so as much as I can, I prepare for those harder moments by saying out loud, this is, you know, this too shall pass. And we can't go swimming this summer. And we're really disappointed about that. But we'll have so many summers to swim together. And so this summer, we're going to do some weird things like water balloons in the backyard. And it won't be exactly the same. But I know we're going to have our old life back or we're going to have a new life. And it's going to be a lot of fun. And I'm very hopeful about that. I try to say that as much as I can. Um, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent here, but I was talking to Kim um, on our call about the emotional bank account. And for those of you who, who have read John Gottman's work, um, John Mordechai Gottman, <laughs> um, you might know this theory, the emotional bank account. It's one of my favorite family therapist tools. Um, the idea is that you have an emotional bank account in your relationships. And just like a financial bank account, you can make investments and withdrawals. One of the important sort of ideas behind this is that the withdrawals are inevitable, just like your money and in life, you have to spend it. And in your relationships, you make withdrawals from those relationships. You get angry, you have conflict. That's inevitable. That's true in person-to-person -person contact. So you can sort of do less in some ways about that. Like it's just going to happen. Where you can invest energy to make those withdrawals hurt less is by making investments into your emotional bank account. In all the moments that I'm capable of, I try to put love into my relationships. I try to put joy into my relationships. And then I accept and I sort of surrender to the fact that some days there's going to be some withdrawals or every day there's going to be a withdrawal. But I know that we'll get through it because we have this really healthy bank account behind us. Thanks, Erica. And it definitely wasn't a tangent because we have questions coming in about um, like, when is it appropriate to share openly our own experience with what's going on and how we're feeling? And so you kind of preempted those questions and, and spoke exactly to what our parents are asking right now. Um, and I just want to add too that, um, and we talked about this a little bit in the beginning is that there is no perfect parenting. And so if we hide our emotions from our children, then we're sending our children the message that it's not okay to have those emotions. So again, it goes back to that idea of balance. If you're having a hard day, it's okay to show it as long as like Erica said, you explain to your children, it is nothing to do with them. And you're also modeling appropriate coping techniques when you're having those hard moments. And even if those coping techniques are positive, pausing, breathing, and um, collecting yourself, then that's plenty. Because then you're sending them the message that that's what they should do when they're upset. I had like, probably my, my biggest like parenting win since all of this started um, a couple of weeks ago, my husband, my husband, sorry, my son has super curly hair, and he didn't want to brush his hair in the morning. And 
you know, I was like going to be late for a meeting. I'm like, we have to brush your hair. Otherwise we'll never get a brush through it tomorrow. And it was going back and forth. And I was starting to feel myself get worked up and agitated. Um, again, cause I'm not perfect, even though I'm a mental health professional. And my son says to me, mommy, it's okay. Let's breathe together. And I was like, what just happened? And it completely shocked me. And it's not something that I really even remember, like specifically teaching him, but he got it. And so since then, I've noticed him taking deep breaths when he gets upset. And yes, deep breathing is one of those things we talk about all the time when you're upset. And it's kind of become this like broken record of, of doing this breathing, but it's a tool that works. And so when you're using something that works, your kids will also. And so it's okay to have emotions. It's okay not to be perfect. Just model for them what to do in those really um, highly emotive moments. Yeah. And not only is it okay, but what I love so much about that is that that was something clearly you had taught him not during this time. So what you saw happening is that by being under some amount of stress and learning a strategy, he had a strategy to apply when he was actually under stress. We don't learn well when we're under stress. That's not the time for us to learn new skills. Um, We have to feel like some space, right, for growth, if we're going to learn something. So um, one thing I'm sort of thinking a lot about during this time is not only how are we going to survive it, how are we going to get through it, but how can we use opportunities when they present themselves to grow and to learn new strategies and to celebrate the fact that we already have some in place Something that Kim and I were talking about the other day that I let, I really love to tell people about is that, you know, I hear people these days using the word stress and trauma kind of interchangeably. And actually, they're not the same thing. Trauma is the result um, of, it's essentially what happens after stress, right? So there's like a math equation here. There's stress, and then you subtract from stress your coping strategies, and that's what equals adaptation or maladaptation. Now, in some situations, the stress is too big. You could do all the coping you want, but um, the stress is so enormous, and maybe it's repeated stress, and maybe you're someone who's already experienced a lot of trauma, and now there are new stressors. And so it's not to say that we can sort of overcome all things, but If you sort of map out for yourself, what are the problems I'm facing and what resources do I have in place to face them, you might find that side of the equation is in fact bigger and that there's even more space to grow. Trying to make stress go away or shielding our kids from stress is kind of a fool's errand. They're going to face stress. God willing, this is the worst thing they'll ever go through, but with the way life is and how unpredictable it can be, they're going to face other things in their lives that feel insurmountable. And I hope, at least for me, my kids will look back on this time and say, this prepared me for something. I'm, pre- I'm more prepared than I was before this. Now, I can say that because I'm somebody for whom the coping side of the equation is bigger. My family is fine. My husband and I still have our jobs. We have our home. We have all the food we could need. We have each other, our family. And so I really feel like we are well positioned. And so again, I don't want to sort of send the message for people who are really in dire straits that if you just, 
you know, do some deep breathing, all will be good. But if you do, are somebody who thinks that there's room to grow in terms of adapting, coping, I really encourage you to think about how powerful that can be. Thanks, Erica. Um, we had a question from somebody that I think probably applies to many of you um, as it relates to doing the dance with your children every day about when they're going to do their schoolwork, getting it done, and like making it happen in a way that you don't feel like you're a nag, you're a Debbie Downer every day, and it's this, again, dance you're doing every day. Um, and so I definitely don't have like the magic answer for this because some days are always going to be better than others. But something that I learned in the last seven or eight weeks, however long it's been, is that um, to have some sort of routine, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a strict schedule. So when this first started, I made the most beautiful color-coded schedule by the half hour of what my son was going to do in every chunk. And then it also had on it what I was going to do in every chunk. And I was like determined and ready and we were going to do this. And then by the third day, I was like devastated because like the newness and excitement of it had worn off and it was becoming a battle every day. So a couple things I can say about that is one, let go of your own rigidity a little, a little bit. I talked about this in the town hall meeting is like when you allow your child to start your day with something that brings them joy and you're starting your day with something that brings you joy, you're setting the day up for more success and more productivity um, with schoolwork or self-care or family time, whatever the day is going to be filled with. Also, routine and schedule aren't necessarily the same thing. So if you wake up in the morning and part of your family ritual, like we were talking about, is to set out how the day is going to look and it doesn't have to be the same from day to day, then you're kind of setting up a structure um, and a routine for your child for that day that is gonna be predictable for them so they know when mommy's done eating lunch or daddy's done um, with his meeting, his afternoon meeting, then they're going to sit with me and do my work. And again, it might be at a different time every day, but if part of your family ritual is to set the routine for the day, then you might feel less like the nagging parent that is fighting with them every day to get their schoolwork done. But I say that with a disclaimer because no day is going to be foolproof. So give yourself um, some grace as on the leadership team, we like say that at least every day, give yourself some grace. Um, you're not perfect and it's not going to be perfect every day and that's okay. Want to add anything to that, Erica? No, I think that was really beautiful and so true. And it's different every day here too. I guess the only thing that I would add, if it's helpful to others to think about, um, my family talks just very openly, like with the kids, like, what are we trying to accomplish here? What's the point of this? Is the point that you become fluent in Hebrew by June? No, that's not the expectation. What are your teacher's expectations? How do we make sure you're getting there? And by the way, because again, like we really emphasize here, ritual and family identity and like meaning making, I say things out loud, like Bachniks don't quit. That's, that's not us. Bachniks are hard workers. Right. And like, 
the idea is that I'm just sort of saying like, who are we going to be during this time? Well, we're going to be us. And this is really hard. And I'm not expecting you to like hit it out of the park. Even I'm expecting you to try your best. Now, some days trying our best doesn't look like right an A. It's not, it's not like our best, it's not necessarily our, our best product overall, but that day trying meant that we made as many attempts as we possibly could, tried all of our strategies, and then eventually said, let's go eat a popsicle on the front porch because this is a mess. <laughs> Erica, do you want to talk to, talk any more about adaptability? You don't have to, but I, yeah, I can. I mean, um, what direction to go? And I love to talk about adaptability. So adaptability, um, something I really love about the concept is that it doesn't mean perfection. It, it, it literally incorporates the idea of risk and stress. You're not an adaptable person if you've never encountered a challenge and, and you've just sort of always been like, that's just luck, right? That's just privilege. Adaptability is very much like when you face stress, how do you move mountains? How do you get through it? Um, I guess one other concept that we, that you and I talked about a little bit on the phone that we haven't addressed here is the power of gratitude. Um, and I can talk about that a little bit. Yeah. If that's interesting to yeah, people. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So this is another totally scientifically, uh, you know, valid, um, concept. Um, there's a lot of science behind it and, and, and kind of why it works. Um, I've been thinking a lot about it during this time because I see people really trying to apply it. Um, when you're under stress, to do it inauthentically, is, it's better not to do it at all. It doesn't hold power if the thing that you're expressing gratitude for you don't feel, or if someone else has sort of said to you, you should be grateful for X or Y, if that's not what's in your heart and the stress is what's real to you, the gratitude won't help you to be adaptable. So um, what I mean by that is if you've never been food insecure, for example, to be like, I'm under all the stress and I'm really stressed out and I don't know I'm gonna get through my, and someone's like, well, you should just really feel lucky that you have all your basic needs met. Yeah, that's true, but then you sort of just end up feeling ashamed, right? And the reason is because now it's shifted. Now you're not feeling grateful, now you're feeling ashamed, which sort of compounds the stress. But, but gratitude can be very powerful. It can really help us to cope. And when gratitude connects us to moments of joy, there's that idea again, joy is what's sticky. When gratitude connects us to moments of joy, it can be really powerful. So what I've been telling clients during this time to do is to start and end the day with a gratitude journal. If you feel like you can, if you have the bandwidth to do it, um, at the beginning of the day, for example, I might say two things about the day that I'm grateful for and really looking forward to. And I end the day with a couple of things that I was surprised by and felt very grateful for that really gave me a sense of joy that day. What I tell everyone to do is the first day, write down whatever your big three or big five are. Write down, I feel really grateful for my home. I feel really grateful for my family. I feel really grateful for a body that can help me move and do the things that I need to do. Those kinds of things, right? Just write them down, get them in the journal. The rest of the week, spend some time noticing smaller joys that are repeatable, and that spark joy. So 
today. Um, something I might say that I was really grateful for is um, the sunshine, even though actually that is one of those big ones, right, that sometimes we don't feel. But I felt really grateful for the sunshine today. I got to get outside twice by myself and clear my head. I got outside with my children and had a lot of fun running around with them and feeling the warmth on my face. That was something I felt very grateful for today. Um, I felt very grateful. I truly felt very grateful that my fluffiest pair of socks were clean and waiting for me in my drawer at the end of the day. I'm always cold at night and I feel like really cozy in my socks. <laughs> and so that's something I felt grateful for. These aren't things that, that like are earth shattering, right? But the reason they work is because it gives me a smile. It fills my heart. It makes me feel like hopeful. Like I have a life I love in big ways, but also in these kind of small ways. If you go through your whole day and it's really hard to connect to moments of joy, and then you find day two, it's hard. Day four, it's hard. And by the time you get to day six or seven, that gratitude journal is empty. Here's what it tells you. One, is that there's some work to do on the inside of your life to create these pockets and create opportunities for more joy to emerge. Or it might signal a bigger mental health problem and a chance to reach out for some support for yourself. Um, stress and anxiety alone are not mental health problems, but the inability to have a balance in your, in your, kind of, in your feelings, in your mental state, that's sort of a time when we say there may be a red flag raised. This is a pretty wild time. And if you were always feeling even and fine, that would be more of a red flag than if you tell me I spend like 40% of the day worried. That seems actually kind of appropriate. It feels to me like you are in the world. You are connected to your feelings. That's a good emotion to be having right now. We just don't want the worry to take over in a way that you feel like I can't ever break out of it. I don't ever feel like gosh, this is a beautiful day and I'm grateful for it. Thanks, Erica. Um, that kind of connects to another question we just received. Um, one of our parents wants to know what our opinion is of the, um, you know, old adage, fake it till you make it. Um, <laughs> like, will kids um, pick up on this? Will they know that we're faking it? And then um, how do we practice the desirable behavior? Um, and so I'll start and then if you want to come in, um, our kids are amazingly intuitive and perceptive. So, um, of course there's some element of trying to be your best self and put a smile on your face and try to start your day with positive mindset. Um, and, oh Hold on, my son is about to come over here with no clothes on. Do not come over here. Go Do you want, take me, to take Do you want me to take over? Or you? No, that's okay. Go in the <laughs> you can't hug me now, babe. Okay, so um, sorry about that. But this is the real world, right? Um, so yes, start your day with positive intent. And your kids will notice if you're being disingenuous. Um, so kind of as we were saying before, in those moments of difficulty, it is okay to say, mom's having a really hard moment. I'm going to excuse myself. I'm going to pause. I'm going to take a few minutes for myself. 
I'm going to breathe, I'm going to calm, and then I'm going to come back and either help you with your work, talk to you about what the upsetting event was, or play with you if you're asking to play. Um, so practicing the more desirable behavior is kind of being self-disciplined, is, is having the awareness in yourself when moments are hard and modeling for your children that you're taking what you need in that moment. Erica, do you want to piggyback? I love everything you just said. I agree. Please don't fake it. Listen, your children love you. You are the perfect parent for the children you have. You could not parent mine and I could not parent yours. They love you just as you are. You don't have to be some Mary Poppins version of what you thought you were going to be at the start of, you know, the, your first pregnancy with your first child. That's not what they need. They need to see you being a human. They need to see you repairing ruptures. There's so much power in that. There's so much great role modeling. My husband and I always say, as much as we invest all this time and money in our kids' co-curriculars, like basketball and dance and piano. We're not raising athletes and dancers. We're not raising, they're not going to be concert pianists. They're doing that with their time. But listen, God willing, they're going to be parents and partners to people. They're going to have to be doing this work themselves one day. And I really want them to have memories of me working it out visibly so when they're in moments like this and they're like, God, am I a good parent? What am I going to do? They'll say, you know, I remember when my mom struggled and this is what she taught me. That's really what I'm shooting for. But I like what Kim, Kim said too about like practicing it like a muscle. Like if you're somebody who just feels like, no, I've got some room to grow here. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't pull myself out of it enough. I don't smile at them enough. I don't find the joy enough. Think of it as like a weak muscle. I'm not a great runner. So I walk and walk and walk. And now I'm like jogging a little bit, but I just, I'm not great at it. I have to keep trying and I keep trying and every day I keep trying. These are skills just like that. They don't have to come naturally to you for them to be something that you want to work on. And I want to add to that too, something that I found really powerful in the last seven weeks or eight weeks. And I don't know if it's just because I've had more time with my child. So there's been more opportunity for a situation like this to occur. But what's been really powerful is apologizing to him when I'm wrong. So if I've lost my cool, I will go back and call him to my lap and say, Hudson, mommy was wrong. I should not have taken my frustration out on you. And I'm really sorry. I'm going to do my best to do better next time. And like, you can literally see like the light come back into his face in moments like that. And that's also teaching him that it's okay to make mistakes and that we learn from our mistakes. We just try not to make the same mistakes again. So what's back to that like perfection doesn't exist. Um, and so it's modeling what's, what's right to teach them those behavioral skills to make them more adaptable and able to cope when they are stressed or upset. Thank you to all of you for coming and um, allowing me to have this space to be vulnerable with you about my experience. Um,
it's always very therapeutic for me, number one, to talk about what's going on, but number two, knowing that I'm doing it in a place with people that understand and won't judge and that are having similar experiences and are part of my community. So thank you for that. And Erica, you are amazing. Thank you for partnering with us tonight. Um, just a wealth of knowledge. You guys can feel free too to reach out to either of us privately. Thank you to all of you. Thank you. This was so much fun. I really enjoyed talking with you guys tonight. Please feel very welcome to reach out if you would like to chat some more. Thanks, everybody.